Jason Baylor Losh, and you're listening to Scene is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. This episode's guest is Shauna Luchter. In the interview, I ask her about a piece she's been working on called The History of the Fistfights of the Surrealists. I failed to get all of the information, though, that I wanted. Uh, during the interview, and I didn't ask her specifically why she was so interested in the Surrealists. So I followed back up with her, and I got some more information. And this is this is what she said. She said that her work is shaped by research and rooted in histories of psychoanalysis and Surrealism. Gaps in translation and subjectivity of interpretation are focal points. Working in a vi- variety of materials, uh, her work is imbued with the dreamlike distortion that the shapes are imagined histories. She came to this project, The History of the Fistfights of Surrealists, quite literally from a previous body of work. Beginning in the early 2000s, she moved fluidly from a project about dreams with research on Freud and the beginnings of psychoanalysis to a project with the focus on hysteria and intervention of treatment in the late 19th century to André Breton and the beginnings of surrealism, a movement that have relies heavily on Freud's psychoanalysis and the interpretation of dreams, as well as fluidity between unconsciousness and rational thought that was central to understanding and treating hysteria. This will hopefully give you some insight into uh, the conversation that comes up between myself and Shauna. Here she is. Shauna? Jason. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming. You have been working on sort of the same work for a very long time, but in different chapters, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Would that be a correct way to describe it? Oh. Or I may not call it the same work. I figured, you, I, I figured you'd say that. Okay, so what... <laughs> Valid, I hope valid. that there is some variety the, within, let's call it a body of work. You were working in the same body of work. Yeah. Excuse me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like. But it, there are people who are obsessively working on the same. I could be making like a giant marble sculpture right now. And doing the same thing over and over. What is that painting that that woman worked on for years and years and years and it weighed like three tons like or something? Like it just got deep? Yeah, it got really deep. Where is that? I can't even think of that, but yeah, anyway, you're not yeah. doing that. You're no. not working on an individual work, but it, it struck me when I was yeah. looking over all of your past exhibitions and everything, you've been working on a, a, a piece about the surrealists mm-hmm. and this fight that the surrealists had back in the 1920s mm-hmm. for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering when I started looking at this, how has that kept your interest over this period mm-hmm. of time? Everything you do is very diverse. Mm-hmm. But how does that kept your interest? Well, so maybe we should define a very long time in this case, I think is about four years. Well, I look back at 2012 or something. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's a long time to yeah. be but c- considering something. Yeah. But I, you know, I, so let's say around 2011, I had finished a sort of a body of work. How I sort of saw a body of work, a group of exhibitions using the same kind of research maybe for a couple years and it was a a sort of body work about hysteria and I kind of had this like natural in a way like a linear shift in my interest towards the surrealists and the history of the surrealists which I can talk about but um, I was really looking for something at that time like to keep me in like to keep my interest literally I was like what can hold my interest for more than two years? Because I don't want to go through this like artistic um, struggle of like figuring out what the next thing is. I might never want to do that again. This is how I felt in 2011. I was like, I think I don't want to do this anymore because I can't, I don't, I'm like in the lull between like my sort of obsessions and I didn't know where I was going. Was it just stressful? anxiety well that or, that trend yeah trying to figure out what the next thing is gonna yeah be. it is for me 
Yeah, and and also I um I think it was like a it it was let's say so it's 2011-12 would have been about 7 years out of grad school. Right. And and I think it was it was also a moment where it's like, okay, am I really doing this? Well, what am I doing? What how do I I, I had a big like art crisis. And um and I, I kind of like started having friends over to my studio and just like trying to talk about what I was going through and what I might be interested in. And I kept coming back to this book over and over again, which was this autobiography of Andre Breton that I've been reading and like sort of obsessed with. I took a photo of that and posted it on my Instagram like a while ago <laughs> because you have all these little tabs on it. Yeah. Like hundreds of tabs yeah. on it. You've gone over this thing many, many times, yeah. I assume. Yeah, and it was at that moment what I was interested in, but I didn't, I still couldn't like see what was right in front of my face. And it was sort of through these conversations, I remember like very pointedly this, like having Carrie Tribe over to my studio and me saying something like, her being like, well, what are you interested in right now? And I'm like, well, I'm really interested, like I keep reading this book over and over. So how long had you had the book? I not, not long. Like I had sort of fallen from directly from the sort of previous body of work I was looking at Andre Breton already and the sort of surrealist had made some um direct comments so there was their, a correlation yeah. between the two things yeah and even in my show in 2010 at Suzanne Villemetter about this hysteria work called HYST at all there was a sort of a small work there was a drawing that was a reproduction of some of Andre Breton's notes. And that, so that was, so probably 2010 is when I started reading the book. So that was a snap and that pushed you into like finding the book and yeah. then moving from that into. Yeah. And then what happened is like, I realized that like it, I, at first I started, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in the, this like sort of specific thing, the history of the fistfights of the surrealists. And that's, that's how, that's what I call it. The history of the fistfights of the surrealists. And, um, there's, there's a number of reasons why, and I can sort of outline them. But when I began working on that as my subject, I thought I was just making one show. And I knew there were eight fistfights that I wanted to focus on between the years of 1923 and like 1937. They were all fights that had been covered in the newspapers. So there were actually eight separate fights. That I had on my list. I wanted to make a show about this, these fistfights of the Surrealists. Did they actually start as fights or did they start as something and then turned into fistfights? They all truly are art protests. Every single one of them. They were art protests that devolve or evolve into like a physical altercation. So they're all fights about art and the meaning of art and specifically surrealism, the meaning of surrealism and the use of surrealism and its circulation like in the art world in the like literary, in the sort of broader cultural world well, at that time. Wasn't the idea of maybe one of those first ones. And what I had thought I'd seen was that it was this idea that a few of the artists had sold out that were in that group or that body of, of artists. So the fist fight started out of a protest of, of sort of selling out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's basically in these eight fights, each one, can be pointed to an artist acting in a way that was not like purely uh, in the surrealist way as outlined by Andre Breton. And he was a real like bureaucrat and there were kind of like guidelines almost that you would have to follow and he could challenge you and say like. So he was the founder or leader of this sort of movement. Yeah. And it's kind of it's gatekeeper. That's really intense. It's it's intense, and it, you know, and I feel like we're kind of coming at it in this funny way right now. But it's, yeah, it's very intense. And yeah, me calling you out and making a piece over. Oh, <laughs> like, no, why are you making quick work? This makes no sense. But it, it, you know, so but what I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get to is that I laid out this structure, and and I was like, there's the history of the fist fights. Here's this brief descriptions of them, and now I'm going to make all these sculptures that I sort of that grew out of my encounters with this history and my encounters in um, 
through the experience of research in Paris and in at the Getty and all these places. And I was just so I was like, I'm just gonna make a group of sculptures that are kind of guided by my research in this topic. And as I started putting together the show, I realized like, oh, wait, this is eight shows. Each one, each fistfight is a show. And each one is a chapter. And each one sort of requires its own research to tell the story. And, and that's sort of where I am now. I'm like in still working on chapter four. And I'm like four years in. So this might be an eight-year project. Which is great. I mean, it's great for me because I don't have that anxiety breakdown in between shows well, anymore where I don't know what I'm going to do. It is great for me as a viewer, too, because <laughs> really the, the reason I asked the question in the very beginning was because your the body of work is so diverse and the objects that you make along with the, the wall pieces that you make are, but the performances, too, alone are just so sort of intense and amazing I wanted to go more into talking to you about what the performances sort of entail, but I wanted to get back to, you spoke a lot about the research. Mm -hmm. So this is another thing, and I've seen you do this, knowing you for a little while now. The amount of research that you do is sort of breathtaking for me because I don't, I, I think that I sort of get in depth with the things that I'm doing, but you were in DC for quite a while here recently mm -hmm. for your show, um, where it was the Hirshhorn, mm -hmm. uh, which is an amazing institution. So like, I was so jealous to hear that you had the show coming up, but you took full advantage of that opportunity and were researching the entire time. Can you talk a bit about mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Well, I also, um, sort of in parallel to having the show at the Hirshhorn had this, um, a sort of research fellowship at the Smithsonian, like the Smithsonian artist research fellowship. How did those line SARF. up together? Did you seek it out? Yeah, and basically, I mean, it made sense. So, I mean, the curator that I was working with at the Hirshhorn, Minki Yoshitake, was like, oh, well, I, you know, I want to propose doing this show. And I also think that this it would could work make along sense with... for you to apply for the SARF program. So they they were two, um, you know, by no means a coincidence, but they're in a theory, one could have fallen through and the other right. would have still happened or vice versa, right. you know. Which is great for an artist. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, to kind of go into, you know, the role of research in my work, um, I think that it's in some way what grounds me. I'm not grounded in a medium. Like, I'm not grounded, like, my, the in terms of a practice. I don't, I have a very hard time staying <laughs> focused in one sort of, like, physical material i say a majority of your time yeah. is spent with the research and like discovering these things and yeah. sort of adapting to figuring out how you're going to use it to create these objects or create sort of the, the movements that you do yeah and i also think of it as like the grounding in terms of um setting a tone like giving filling my mind with this sort of objects images stories of this time of this history then infiltrates everything that I see and make in a way so it's like it's like I'm going into this other world and and it it letting it influence me in all these different ways and it comes out in writing and I've sort of organized it so there's like a piece of writing for each fistfight or chapter each one's a chapter so there's a piece of writing there's a set of sculptures and there's a performance or like a live real-time element and so because you can't kind of collapse those things into each other like they're all different um ways of communicating and they're you know a sculpture can't tell a like deeply in intricate like social you network. need all the parts to form the whole yeah and and also that they they don't actually form a whole like something else that's really important to me is maintaining all the different versions like in what way? Allowing what you... there to be um, different perspectives on this story at once. So and, it can be read multiple ways? Yeah, and not one of them being the true absolute correct or, whole. or. Yeah. So even when I write, I'm always kind of like constantly acknowledging and pointing to the fact that I'm an artist pursuing my own interests. In, and my interests are. Like the sort of like discovery of history and the kind of um, freeing up of 
uh, idea of like an objective truth in terms of history by revealing all of these multiple perspectives at once and and kind of like showcasing how they are not collapsible into one narrative as an art historian is required to tell like one narrative. Are you challenging history in any way? Like, are you challenging the sort of like a singular story? I, yes. Yeah, I do. I am. And, and, but I'm not necessarily challenging it by offering a correct, a corrected version, I'm like pointing at things. Like I feel like that's the, the one of the great, like liberties of being an artist like what's the role of an artist in society today and like I always come back to this like and this is way too simple but it's like you can experiment and um, try things out without consequences of the quote-unquote real world so like if I'm an artist who's taking on wearing a hat of like a researcher or an academic art historian type person I don't have the same requirements to deliver a dissertation that fits into that discipline. In the same way, when you are an artist making something that resembles a piece of furniture, like it doesn't have to stand up to the same test that a piece of furniture would. Or when Jorge Pardo makes a lamp, or when, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I could I go get on. You. And, you know, no, I, yeah. totally, I totally understand. There, there's like a freedom there that is, that allows us to question authority, really, and and like to open things up to interpretation. So, was your choice of picking the fistfights this sort of challenge against sort of the status quo of like what, or, or not necessarily status quo? Was it this thing was a challenge or was sort of a front to a way or a particular way of thinking? But like what you're doing essentially with your work is also challenging a particular way of thinking about the history of like how we look at objects and art in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And, and like the, for me, the beautiful thing about like a fist fight as an example of a quote unquote historical moment to unpack is that it's um, at the same moment, it's like a dramatic, like beautiful, true ex physical expression. It's also like a pathetic like macho breakdown right. in an argument you know these are poets and like and who devolve into something writers. that is like the most base of yeah. of ways of arguing yeah, instead like, of using their intellect yeah they go to the hospital with a broken nose it's just a bunch of dudes in a room yeah and so that's <laughs> and then like that other layer is like i'm you know i'm a woman reconsidering well this, this was one of my questions grade. right yeah. so for as a woman looking at a bunch of guys fighting in a room and picking this sort of the most base of ways of uh, having an argument, like that was a consideration. Yeah, most definitely. That that it were these moments where women <clears throat> were physically excluded, but in a way by choice, because what woman wants to be in the? You know, it just doesn't. The fist fight. Have you found that through your research then too about some of the women that were party to uh, this movement at the time that weren't necessarily involved in sort of the, the confrontation, not necessarily the fighting, but like the, 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 the talks like of aggressive acts. Yeah. I mean, in each of these protests as let's say, um, I can't think of any examples in the newspaper reports that I've read about these fights that broke out where um, there was a woman involved as a kind of aggravator. Antagonist. Or... Yeah. Yeah, it was, oh, and it and it's often was, was like, a, there were a few, like Robert Desnos was a real hothead. Um, you know, Andre Breton would sort of push things in motion, but not really be in the mix totally. Do you think that is also, though, a, could that be a factor of the fact that women were sort of excluded from the conversation in the writing as well, the history as well too. Yeah. Just not written about period. So if there was a woman who was actually sort of, she just would have been excluded regardless. Yeah. I mean, maybe excluded from, from the telling of the fist fight because no one would say, Oh, Valentine Hugo punched, um, you know, Yvonne goal in the face. Well, I guess that just wouldn't be in the newspaper. Well, my, my question would be more toward, 
the relationship between less about the actual confrontation, physical mm-hmm. conversation, con- confrontation, but the um, participating in the movement. Yeah, no, and that's, I think that is at least something that has been taken up by like contemporary historians, a kind of like revisionist art history to make sure that the like women who were present in the movement are um, recognized and accounted for. And, you know, you can, you can find a book of, the role of the surrealist women artists like in, within the movement but they were they were pushed to the sidelines yeah. some of them were i mean you know andre breton was married three times all of these women were were very important to him artistically intellectually they were like very intelligent two of them were like okay artists on their own right you know <laughs> Um, well, at least you're honest. But you know, but I do. Um, you know, I think that he was he was a sex he was sexist and he was homophobic, and oh. um, that plays out in in who was a kind of the surrealist. You know, the, uh, the other thing is like the surrealist as a movement was primarily populated by writers, the artists that they looked to and followed and that Breton really championed um, weren't necessarily like 100% quote unquote surrealist, but they had like surrealist tendencies like Picasso, de Chirico. Um, they weren't part of like his movement, let's say, because they Picasso was, you know, he's right. He, Picasso's Picasso. He's always doing his own thing, but he was friends with him and, and in right. this, in like he's friends. their circles the first, overlap. It seems like that maybe was the first part of being in the circle to begin with mm-hmm. was being friends with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, much like today. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, another layer of this research is to look at this network of people and how they circulated and helped each other and hurt each other and how it's not all that different. I mean, what I find when I'm doing historical research, the thing that, that another thing that keeps me going is like this pretty frequent feeling where I'm like, wow, people are so much more the same. Like than different. Than different. They're the exact yeah. same that they are now. Yeah. And like the technology that we're surrounded with maybe has changed a little bit. But the people but like have not. this like human drive and like insecurity and the kind of like <laughs> positive and negative forces that were driven by artists are some of the most insecure people in the world. We need constant validation. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's a lot of like the, the narcissism <laughs> like that is present um in the art world. But yeah, there's, I mean, I do think that um, I, I find like, yeah, and I, 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 I look for connections as much as I'm looking for differences. So when you're thinking about the aspect of theater in your work mm-hmm. and the performances, you were in Performa 13, mm-hmm. right? So one of the chapters was portrayed at Performa 13. Mm-hmm. Um, did you do a performance? You were in um, the Whitney Biennial. Mm-hmm. Did you do a performance piece in that as well too? Is there always a performance piece with each one of the aspects of the, there, the work? In in theory, yes. At the Whitney, it, I didn't do a performance. Um, the Whitney was just a kind of collection of sculpture installation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Performa, for example, was just the play that went with chapter one. So where the exhibition, um, which was called The Bearded Gas, was first, it was 2013, I guess, was at Suzanne Vielmetter here. And then it was, it also traveled and was shown in Cleveland at the Museum of Art in Cleveland at this transformer station space that they yeah, had there. Yeah, it's a fantastic space. Yeah, and yeah, that was great. That was the first show there. It was a group show called The Unicorn and it was like four artists and it was, really great. I was actually just over there talking to a curator and they mentioned you in that show. Yeah. Nice. It was a great, it was, I mean, it was, it It left a mark. It was a really good show, I think. But, um, so then the performance for that chapter one was the Performa 13 like play. And so it's my intention that there, they, each of these pieces exist separately, but they can all be together, but you can't, 
read an essay and watch a play and look at an installation all at the same time. It's too much. Yeah. You're, because you're going to lose information out of one of them while you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, and the, it's not designed in my mind to be to be like that. It's like you could read this essay. You could read it while you're sitting next to the sculptures. Do they and inform? And it might change the way you... Do they inform the sculpture? Not liter- not directly. Like, right. I don't think sculpture should be pedantic. No, yeah. absolutely Like, so the sculptures are kind of like... I like to think of them as they've been infected by the history or they're like dream objects. That's a nice way to objects. look at it. Yeah. yeah, like dream objects. They might have been there and then they were like forever morphed into these like uncanny, weird beings. When we first met, I didn't, like I only knew you as a sculptor. I didn't know you did performance and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know your background at all. So I was like, oh, she's really a good sculptor. And then I looked, I, somebody said, oh, she does performance. And I was like, oh, I wonder if she's a dancer or something. And I had no idea. I felt so naive. Uh, because then when I started looking at your work like a long time ago, the the theater of that is mm-hmm. really intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did a lot of theater for a while, mm-hmm. like oh, back in college. Really? Yeah. Um, but I, I got the hell out. But the theater of this whole thing in like the way you set this up, I want to ask you how you portray those characters in, do you, do you call them plays? Do you call them acts? What do you call them? Sometimes I call it a play, but that does feel a little hokey. Well, I, mean, yeah, I know, I know. But the, <laughs> yeah. well, do you write a script? Mm-hmm. And I have a couple questions, yeah. so I'll ask them first. Yeah. Do you write a script? Do you actively direct your actors when you're putting this together? Like rehearsals, like how often mm-hmm. are you rehearsing? And um, are you in these as well, too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right as of now, I've made the installations for four chapters, and I've done two plays. So I've done the play for chapter one and chapter three. And like right now, as of tomorrow, I'm starting to work on the play for chapter four, which will really premiere. Tomorrow. I'm supposed to kind of start working <laughs> on it tomorrow, yeah. I got I to gotta figure it out by tomorrow. Um, you just said it. You have to do it. <laughs> that's part of why I'm saying it. But um, so that will, the f- chapter four play will premiere in LA in September. Where? Um, the v- exact venue is to be determined. Is it through your it's gallery? It's through LAX Art. It's a commission oh, for the, as part of the LAX Art Occasional. And so. you had worked with LAX Art previously as well too. Yes, although I've never done a show. Like a proper, proper show. show. Yeah. yeah. I've had, um, I mean, I've had a long relation. From the beginning, I've sort of been an artist and helped out and designed cards for a while. And I, I mean, well, you, I've, done, I've been a part of that organization. I'm going to get into this later, but like you are very active across all spectrums of sort of Los Angeles art scene, but like by choice. And it's, we'll talk about it in a bit. But the okay. show. Okay, so. So performance, let me yeah. answer this Finish performance yeah. question. So, um, and so the performances or plays, first of all, necessarily are dictated by the sort of story of the fight that they're, that they're looking at. And so in the case of chapter one and chapter three, I would say they're plays, they're both plays, they're both plays with actors, both plays with actors that I like directed a lot. And now I think through that experience, I'm a good director and I love working with actors. Had you done this before or not? A little bit. I had a little bit. I've kind of had. I've like had, when? Um, like school or what? I had a piece that, that I've done like five or six times that I first did in 2006 called Hear It Here. Oh, wow. That involves these two actors and it's a set. It's a structure. It was a structure, it was the uh, first time was at Art Basel Miami in 2006 when like Jens Hoffman was curating this art perform uh, thing that still happens, art perform still happens. And um, so it's a structure where there's like two actors. This is a digression, but I'll just go it through is, it. It is, but I'm quick. interested. Okay. I'm totally interested. <laughs> there's... There's uh, two actors on a stage, and they're both wearing headphones, as you and I are both wearing headphones now, and they're standing in front of microphones. And in the audience, the space of the audience is placed two microphones. 
that kind of are mirrored, mirroring the actors' positions on the stage. And from the very beginning, there's a voiceover, which is usually me. And I say, you know, welcome to this performance of Hear It Here. The performance will last 50 minutes. Every 10 minutes, an accordion will play a song for one to two minutes. And you, the audience, are invited to speak into the microphones in front of you, and the actors will repeat what they hear without interpretation. And so the performance audience is up to you. And then then the actors would just stand there. And wait. And wait. And the audience members would speak in, and what would happen is you would just repeat what they, the actors would repeat right. what they right. heard without interpretation they weren't acting it out it wasn't they so there's were just, not a whole lot of direction by the way that piece sounds amazing it's 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 pretty amazing and it was so it was it's been it's been repeated you know so first time in miami that was the, kind of the most awkward i learned a lot um <laughs> then it was part of the uh california biennial in 2008 and which happened both in orange county and in santa barbara i did it at the um what is now the MCA Santa Barbara, but it was, it had a different name, which I'm forgetting at the moment. And then, um, and then I also did it at Soma in Mexico City and in Zurich. Um, and there's one other, oh, and in New York in Performa 09. Um, oh. I did it as part of this kind of curated. Uh, a sort of slightly like offshoot section that I think. Does it get Elizabeth better each time? Doing. Yeah, it gets better each time. Why? What do you do that's different that makes it better each time? Because you're not actively. Are you changing? No, the... and this, this, you know, and the script that I just repeated from memory is basically always the cue. You're not changing the parameters of what's happening. So why no. does it change? I don't know. I think because I understand the crowd. I don't know. But maybe... you're not actively actively doing anything during that to. I mean, maybe it's just, it's, it it's almost your... coincidence that the Performa 09 crowd at the DIA, um, like at that, the bookstore space on 22nd Street, uh-huh. when it was empty, remember when it was empty yeah, for yeah, a while? Yeah. So it was in the first floor space um, on a Friday night. So it was busy. It was maybe just the ideal audience. Yeah, it was perfect. It was the perfect audience for it. And so maybe now I know I won't now do it know with a crappy audience. You totally anymore. know where it should be shown because you know the piece. You've seen it so yeah. many times. Yeah. So. Well, but that, that, I mean, just to mm-hmm. finish that for me, like an artist knowing their audience and making mm-hmm. a work or adjusting the work to sort of fit, you didn't change the work. You changed the location. Yeah. Well, and. Sort of by chance, but like also that's just, it's smart after a certain amount of time doing those things. Well, and I, I also think that. um what that piece sort of highlighted for me in relationship to sculpture and making installations. And and I almost would say I'm more like site sculptures in, in relation to each other as opposed to making an installation, right? I like to think that I'm making like discrete objects that are together, but the last few years I've been putting them on platforms together. And so they're somewhere in between a kind of, it strikes me that like, knowing you, you could get a thing in a space and totally change it around at the last moment and have it work a whole lot better than sort of a preconceived idea. But you're willing to do that when you get into the space, too. Yeah, sometimes you have to. It's yeah, I mean, site responsive or something, right? And that's not necessarily well, site specific. A lot of artists are not flexible like that. Mm-hmm. So it's an important thing to like learn as an artist to be flexible and allow these adjustments to take place in process. And I think in Maybe in part for me, it's because I'm trying to create a certain feeling or like a space where a viewer can have certain emotional feelings or reactions to objects or ideas or yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the conditions for making someone feel something, it, it's like a real specific thing. Completely different. Yeah. It's like a really, you know, it's, it's like a, yeah, it's like a feeling that isn't um you you gotta work to like make that set the set set it right like the lighting or just how somebody enters a room and what they see first and that's amazing i'm totally i'm so glad we got off track (laughs) (laughs) i really am that's fantastic (laughs) Um, 
Well, Should I go back to the question? Yes, I'm okay. sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay, so um, for the performances, I do work with actors, which I admitted I love, and um, but uh, and I do write a script, but it's almost like in the in the two that I've completed so far, and the one I'm about to start working on, I think of them more as like a collage. So what I'm trying to do with the performances is present material that's like crucial to these fistfights, these moments, these that present the like artworks that like the quote unquote primary artworks of these events. In other words, like for the first fistfight, it happened at this multimedia like program that Tristan Zara curated one night where all these writers were speaking Eric Satie and like Stravinsky were like piano music was being played. Man Ray's first film premiered and like and then like Sonia Delaunay made the costumes and sets for this play, The Gas Heart of Tristan Zara's that was supposed to be the final act. So all of these freaking amazing artworks were were also like present at the first fist fight of the surrealists. You know, like Charles Sheeler and Paul Strand's Manhattan does this beautiful film, this Hans Richter film, Rhythmus 21. They were all shown as part of this night. It was like a perfect storm. Yeah. And so what I I was I wanted to show this like to the audience while telling the story of what happened as a way of like getting to that feeling of like what was it like to be there just for a second or what how do we imagine it was like to be there now? And so the for the first play, it took form as like a narrator giving a lecture as if I was giving a lecture, but he and it was were you the narrator I, in this no i I cast someone as a narrator who's an artist, Joey Frank, who's kind of amazing. He lives in Brooklyn. Um, so Joey Frank was my narrator but he's also a very good friend who like i knew he knew i he could hang out with all the time for uh, for a couple of months you knew while he we did body what you needed to do but also like he brought a lot to it yeah right he brought his own character and that i think that's something that i was interested in too like what's collaboration like you know and then i would say that um and and this again kind of mirrors this surrealist performances where they were sort of all working together and collaborating with each other uh, in or like helping each other realize their their work and so um so joey was the narrator and his lecture kept getting interrupted by these like actors who had these sets and costumes who were basically contributing quotes from zara's play they were portraying actors actors portraying actors or were they portraying other people they were like being actory, but yeah, they were, they were, <laughs> they were, yeah, they were giving, they were, uh, but they spoke only in quotations essentially from these artworks gotcha. or from critics of the time who were like talking about the fight or about what was going on between this sort of battle between the end of Dada and the kind of establishing of surrealism. So, and you know, and then there was like live piano. We screened the films, borrowed them from MoMA, showed them on sixteen millimeter. Oh, wow. Like so, it was a it was a multimedia performance Very that mirrored. And... Yeah, it mirrored the original like July 6, nineteen twenty three multimedia lovely. performance. How long was it? It's like fifty five minutes. Oh, so I it's like, like to keep stuff n- short. Yeah, because otherwise nobody can sit through this. Stuff. Yeah, people or they're forced. Yeah, I like to keep it short. And then the chapter three um, play which did premiere at the same time as the like installation sculptures and essay at the Prez Art Museum in Miami. Um, that play, again, was I worked with two actors to learn these scenes from this play that Louis Aragon had written in 1924 um, that were part of, that, that were performed on the night that this fistfight happened. And so we learned these scenes and it was almost like straight, like just these three scenes, but they were kind of interrupted by this piano playing music from the time and this film by Germaine Dulac called The Seashell and the Clergyman that ties into the story. And then there was like some kind of context given by a voiceover 
that was reading these newspaper descriptions of the fight. So in other words, I didn't technically write anything for that one. It was just a collage of of like newspaper reports being read, the scenes from the play. But there was a lot of direction. But I yeah, but I Tons really, of really directed it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um I think that answers your question. You did go through all three. Questions. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, it took you so long. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, going back into then, I said I'd come back to it. Like in LA, I feel like you're very present. Part of that is, is that you uh, help run Extra mm-hmm. Magazine, Quarterly Art Magazine, that I didn't know about until I moved to LA, and I feel very... I think it's unfortunate that I did not because it, it offers a lot of insight to what's happening here, but there's some amazing articles and everything. Can you talk a little bit about what extra is? It's been around since 1997. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you didn't start it. I did not start extra. I kind of came to extra. I came to LA to go to grad school at UCLA. Out of where? I was living. You were born in New York, right? Yeah. I was born in New York. Long Island? I grew up in Long Island. Then I was, you know, went to college, came back, was living in Brooklyn, in Greenpoint, working at a gallery in Chelsea. Um, and Did I, you ever get out of the city? Like, where'd you go to college? I went to college in Providence. I went to Brown. Okay. And so, so a little bit out of the city, but like, yeah, you're still but on the East Coast. Yeah, I still spent the summers in the New York. I still like went right. back like once a month on the weekends. You know, so then, yeah, I was living in, in Brooklyn, working in Chelsea, and just sort of had this feeling like, I got to get out of here because I'm going to be here forever. I'm always going to live in New York. That's so sort of like the New York thing though, right? I it traps leave. you. Yeah. So I should leave for a while and come back. So I was like, I I want to go to grad school and I want to go to grad school in Chicago or LA because those were like places where like art schools with like heart and soul no, were. Absolutely. Well, those are the two <laughs> you know? other cities that everybody perceives as being the next thing yeah. outside of New York. Yeah. And especially, you know, this was, 2001 and LA had just kind of been getting a lot of press there's that like famous spin article about the like grad school at UCLA um so you're like I'm gonna follow spin's advice (laughs) no no that was I think my applications were already in when that was anyway but the point is that um I I did go to I escaped New York and I went to Chicago where I could work part-time and do my grad school applications, work in my studio Oh, wait, more. so you went to Chicago? I moved to Chicago. I thought this whole story was going to you moving to L.A. Well, there's a little, <laughs> there's six months, nine months in Chicago in between that oh, are so very sh- important to my story of extra. I'll let you finish. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Because the reason they're important to my story of extra is because the reason I was able to move to Chicago is that I wrote to this small, or not that small, but a nonprofit art magazine there, which you might know, called New Art Examiner. That um, was in Chicago at that point. They were like 29 years old in Chicago. Had you, had you been reading it in New York? You knew about it or what? I knew about it. Uh, I worked at, I mean, I worked at a gallery in New York as the archivist, you know, so I knew. So you saw all this stuff. Yeah. And and I also, um, when I was in college, I ran a magazine. I just kind of liked it, you know, so I yeah. wrote to the masses. They needed any help. And they said yes. And I said, okay, this is my way out. So I took this job as like a part-time production coordinator. It's good. And I loved it. And um but while I was there, the magazine went under. Oh, like things were dark. It was. That's why they needed help. It well, it's like <laughs> complicated. And this is not the time to get into it. But so then I got into UCLA and I decided, you know, the magazine was shutting down, and so and I was moving to LA. So moved to LA, and I thought, you know, I really liked having this connection to this art right. journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I wrote to Extra and said, hi, I Did just you see moved it? to LA. It was around Warner, the grad studios. Got you. And I saw it and I thought it looked great. It was when, back when it was still like totally newsprint and like one color. They looked like uh, little newspapers. Yeah, they were, but I mean, they were staple bound, um, you know, kind of almost eight and a half by 11. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they looked great. At that time, I think Connie Pertil was doing the design that year. And um, and I said, do you need any help? I just moved here. And they said, yeah, actually, can you tell us what happened at New Art Examiner? Because we want to make sure we don't make those same mistakes. I'm like, By the way, that's genius of them to even ask. <laughs> They're Seriously, very smart people. That's and, really smart. And so that's how I sort of started with Extra. And then 
they so we had this kind of this meeting and and I and it was kind of through that meeting that I realized how much I had learned through that experience about how to run a nonprofit and how not to and about the magazine world and about funding it and all I learned so much in my year there for them to even I mean that just shows that like ego wasn't taking place where they were going to ask somebody give us the information we're going to learn from that so we can and then it taught you something too to trust your sort of self and your yeah. instincts yeah it was and then so then I said well do you guys need any help and and they did they needed somebody to check the mail once a week and like answer and like you know send the magazines out four times a year and so I started then while I was still in grad school my job was office and it was probably like six hours a week. Right. But that's good for you in grad school anyway. Yeah. I did. Perfect. I mean. Anything more would have been too much. I was also like much. TAing four classes and like working somewhere. I mean, I had. And making artwork. Crazy. Yeah. So I didn't need anything to do. So, um, and then I kind of just like stuck with it. And so Extra was founded in the 90s by a group of artists who are still involved. Like the primary. Is there a board um, of directors? Yeah, the so it's a nonprofit now, and I'm now the executive director of the nonprofit that publishes Extra called Project X Foundation for Art and Criticism, and the journal itself is has a editorial board of like ten people, of which I'm also a part. But how long have you been in the position you're in now with Extra as executive director? Yeah, um, I sort of established that position two years ago two three years ago and we didn't have we never had an executive director before that and and before that i was the managing editor which extra had also never had a managing editor before so you're sort of growing it and it's adapting with time yeah and as um yeah we're all kind of i would it's not exactly professionalizing but we're it's growing and the budget grows but with such kind of um care and it's like conservative in a kind of really good uh, growth, like of a not small arts nonprofit way. I mean, but I would say in the 12 years now that I've been involved with Extra, 13 maybe, wow. um, you know, the budget has doubled or something, but that's going from like zero to $2. <laughs> <laughs> um and so everything is very kind of like considered and 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 the beauty of it is that it also folds in perfectly to the, my studio practice and the way I need to travel for my work. Um, somehow it all just kind of goes together. I do the same with my work, my day job, where I'm able to like travel and, and it makes yeah. all the difference in the world. Yeah. I mean, I could not... Even teaching is much more of a constraint in terms of planning exhibitions locked in every Friday or whatever yeah. for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Which I mean, it's obviously that's bearable and um, I would be making more money and have health insurance if I were teaching full time. But I, I, I think there's a lot of other um, things that would like be a, would bring me down. I mean, I'm really appreciative for, being a part of this sort of extra community and what we're we've been able to do. There's a lot more that I wish we were able to do better, but we're always working on it. I'm thinking about the role of you sort of diversifying the practice and doing all these things at once and then doing extra at the same time. It seems to me like you you need to be active and having your hands in a lot of different things at once mm -hmm. in order to be productive. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, and I also think that by um, diversifying my portfolio, I'm less likely uh, to be like bored or maybe from the outside pegged down as like stuck in one thing or another. That seems like a real concern for you, mentally to be free to allow yourself to expand beyond like the boundaries or the structures that you've you've put up or like mm -hmm. somebody else is going to impose on you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day that, like, I don't know what my problem is, but for some reason it's very important to me to uh, be competent at, at at everything. You know, like, like I think that's important. I feel the same way. Though. Yeah. Like, I, I get that. And But instead of, I could just focus on being really good at one thing. I don't want, because then, like, 
just sort of maybe it's that the um, possibility of failure becomes larger. Like if you put all your eggs in one basket, then. But I mean, this doesn't this isn't doesn't logically map onto like why would somebody like myself work in a wide variety of mediums? It's not because like if I only made things with lead, then. Um, you know, all my eggs would be in one basket or something. But it it almost is like that. It's like, it's like I don't I don't believe in like a singular idea being the best one. Like I'm always like weighing all the options for everything, and I just and I feel like it's necessary for me to explore all options. So the idea that you're doing these things all at once is not a bad thing to me. I I feel the same way. I want to be able to sort of hit as many things as I can at once and not necessarily to, I think it's great to focus. Like I stopped painting for like six years and I didn't do anything other than sculpture because I knew I needed to get really good at it. Mm -hmm. You're currently able to do that without having to focus in on those certain things. It's become harder for me lately to try to do more than one thing at a time. And so I find myself, I don't necessarily think this is bad, like compartmentalizing where I know for the next three weeks, I'm going to focus on making this sculpture and I'm not even going to try to read or write or anything. I'm just, all my energy is going to be making this piece. And then as soon as that's done, I know that I need to write this essay and I'm going to spend these three days doing that and nothing else. Because how's, how's that working for you? It works. It's the yeah. only way I can get things done. <laughs> so it's like I can do, you know, otherwise, if I don't talk myself into this kind of like focus schedule, I'm just answering emails all day. You know what I mean? Like either right. like I have to because I could I know I could be working that sculpture and I know I could be writing. So I better just answer these emails right now, or yeah. you know, and so um but it's good because it means I can have this kind of serious sculptor moment and figure something out. And then, but then I have to go over here and figure out how to write about this thing. You know, yeah. I've known you for a while now. This has been really enlightening to speak to you about the work. I, you told me things I had no idea. Well, thanks. It's really, I feel like you're going to be really good at this. Thanks. <laughs> well, it sheds a whole new light on you and like what you're doing. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you for coming. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.